Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. And put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to to Siloam and wash, and so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. We're on our journey through uh, this middle section of the Gospel of John, and it's been uh, a real challenge to see and really understand who Jesus is and why Jesus Why is Jesus to stand out among all the other uh, things that push in on us, claiming to be God, claiming to want our trust, uh, claiming to have the the right answers to life, where Jesus says, you know, I'm the light of the world, through him he has life, through him he has understanding. So we're going to try and understand a little bit deeper this morning, what does it mean to actually follow this Jesus? What does it mean that, what, what does he do for us so we can understand uh, the big picture of the world's questions and life's questions. So how about we pray first and then we're going to dig a bit deeper into this passage. Dear Father God, we thank you for uh, not leaving us in darkness. Thank you for revealing yourself through Jesus and through scripture that we have here today that it tells us all we need to know about who you are and how you revealed yourself to him. But Lord, we pray that your spirit be with us too that your spirit would open our eyes so that we can see you clearly this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience, particularly, I might be asking the blokes more than the ladies, I think this will apply to. Have you ever had the experience where you go to the cupboard, you're after a snack or you're after something that you need, you know it's going to be in there. Um, For example, uh, I get the, the hunger hunger pains a bit and go to the cupboard I know there's a bag of chips in there somewhere I go to the cupboard and you don't see them they're not there they should be there they're not where they're normally there are we out somebody's eaten them still have a 21 year old living in my house that's quite possible that somebody's already eaten them it's not there so what do you do you call out to your wife Kim where's the chips and uh she says they should be on the second shelf. So you go back for a second look and you go, look, they're not there. I know they're not there. I'm hungry. I need something now. Honey, chips are going to cure my pain. That sort of thing. It's, it's the end of the world. Kim, they're not there. Where are the chips? Do you know where they are? And she says, are you having a boy's look? Is what her, it's, does that happen in your house? There's this phrase, are you having a boy's look? Meaning, I know it's a bit derogatory and I think it's a bit sexist as well, but I'm the victim here, saying that you don't look hard enough. 
you're having a half-hearted effort. You know, you're looking, but you look past, it's just easier to have a whinge and get her to come. She comes to the cupboard. Yep, puts her hand straight on. Just there, exactly where I told you. That's it. And it's like, it's become this term in our house, are you having a boy's look? I'm not sure whether it's in anybody else's house, but it's used quite a lot in our house. Um, I actually think it's really funny, because I'm a boy, so when Kim says, uh, are you having a boy's look? It's like... Well, I can get away with it because I'm a boy and I only have half-hearted looks. Uh, but if Kim can't find something and I know where it is, I can say to her, now, are you having a boy's look? Which I think would be more offensive. I think in our 29 years of marriage, I think it's happened once that I've actually pulled that off. Uh, it doesn't usually work because she knows where everything is. But we get in this thing, we have a boy's look often. We look for something and we go, ah, oh, we just scan our eyes over it. It could be there right in front of us, but we miss it. Or it gets blocked out by other things. We can see everything else, but not the thing we want. Or we just don't see it at all. And we just miss it. Now, that's something like a packet of chips. But I think we actually do it with, when we try and look for God. We actually go, what is God all about? I really want to connect with God. I want to know God. I want to look for him. So I open up the cupboard door of life and I look around and he's not there. Or, or I'm looking around, I see him, but he's not as big or, or prominent as I thought he would be. So we sort of look past him. And we have this idea of a boy's look, of just a half-hearted look. And we don't actually see him clearly. Not see him clearly enough to actually engage with him or not see him clearly at all that we miss him completely that we can't see this God of the universe, that our, our eyes are blurred or, or we're a bit lazy or we just don't know what we're looking for, that we have a boy's look. Now, I think we all can fall into that trap. And here's a story of um, another story in John where Jesus comes along and it's another healing story. But there's much, much more going on to just another healing story particularly when somebody gets their eyesight to see. But they're actually, spiritually, they're blind and they're having a boy's look. They think they know, but they don't really know. But what's stopping them from seeing? Jesus puts his finger on what's stopping them from seeing him clearly and he opens their eyes so they can see and what their response is. This is a story of a journey of a man uh, who does get his world blown away by finally getting to see who God truly is. So we're just going to start. Um, we need to uh, see what's going on in this. There's a few characters we need to know. Uh, there's this big question we heard in the Bible reading from chapter 9, where Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they see a blind beggar. And the question is asked. Uh, they're going along, the disciples ask, Rabbi, which is, means teacher, it's, they're talking to Jesus, teach us. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, we actually need to unpack, we actually, from uh, what we know of that first century Roman culture, what is going on for this guy in his life and why they're even asking this question. It's a bit of a weird question if you just open the Bible and go, oh, not sure about that. See, in first century Roman Empire, so you've got... Um, the Jews are very staunch religious people. They've got what we might call the Old Testament. They've got their scriptures and they're trying to work out their way to God, to see God, to know God. But they've come up with this idea that if the closer you are to God and the more God is pleased with you, the more he's going to bless you. So it's easy to see financially. 
If somebody was a wealthy person of that day, they'd go, man, God must be pleased, pleased with you. I want to be like you. I'm going to live like you because whatever you're doing makes God happy. But it works the other way. If people are poor in poverty, they go, wow, you must have done something to upset God because he's cursed you, basically, that you're living in that sort of poverty. I don't want to be like you. And not just financially, but physically as well, that if somebody um, was blind... It was a punishment. It was a curse from God. You must have done something. You must have sinned. Sin is just offending God. You must have offended God in some sort of way that God has put this on you, that you are blind. Now, this man was born blind. It's like, wow, God must be really angry at you that you come into the world. It's so offensive to God that he's made you blind that way. That was the way they thought. Now, we, we have a little bit of a tendency to do that. We often associate being uh, having lots of stuff in this world as being blessed by God and God must be pleased with you. We, our default might be a little bit like that, but these guys push it that extra step, which is nowhere to be found in the Bible in that way. But they're asking the question. It's a fair question. This guy's born blind, and we kind of have to stop sitting in this 21st century room and get back, sit into the, the first century. We're work, walking on the road with them, and that we've actually got to see this man like they're seeing him. He's blind. He's beggar. We look down on him, because that's what they did. Because if you're cursed like that from God, it's not just... Uh, the question that comes out of it, but it affects who you are and your status in life. So you think in first century Roman Empire, you're a bit of a nobody if you haven't got eyes. So if a young man is born blind, he probably hasn't got an education, hasn't got a way of earning an income, hasn't got a way of earning income means he probably is not going to get married, probably not going to have kids, that's all beyond him. He's not living the normal life that we would say. It's not like if somebody's got a disability today. For him in that, in that time and space, this is really bad. It's tragic. He's got no life. In fact, uh, because he's a Jew, and even uh, here, it's a Sabbath day. They're not far from the temple uh, where, where that water pool is. Uh, it's part of their culture to come near to God through the temple. The temple is like drawing near to God in his presence. And... If you were a good Jew, you were able to go into your sacrifices uh, and, and confess your sins and draw near to God right in front of the temple. If you weren't a Jew, uh, you had to be in the outer courts. You could get right up to the temple. So there's a number of a series of different courtyards that you could go into, the outer one being the Gentiles' court. Because if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And if you're not a Jew, you're not allowed near the temple. So you're only allowed in the outer fenced area. Now, from what archaeologists can work out, um, or they know for sure that anybody with disabilities, like being blind, meant you couldn't go to the temple, like right up to the temple, even if you were a Jew. At best, what they can work out, he might have been allowed to go into the Gentiles' court, which means he's not even treated like a citizen of his own country, of his own people. No, no, you stay out. We don't like people uh, with any sort of uh, problems like that coming near too near to God now again that's not in scripture but it's something the Jewish practices the religious people enforced because they just thought it was the right thing to do now if you ever thought about that if you go to the temple what, what are you expecting to see you know you're never going to see uh, a ramp a wheelchair ramp at the temple because 
nobody in a wheelchair is allowed in to go up the stairs to the temple front door. Um, the little dots at the doorways that we've got around here for blind people, blind impaired, so they can sense when there's a change in the floor and things like that. There's none of that. Because no people with those sort of impairments are allowed in. It's like those people are shut out. We're not even going to accommodate you. You're outsiders and you've got this problem of sin because God's cursed you. So you're outside of society. You're on the fringe of society. You're not one of us because you've done something bad. This is how people have viewed the first century people with disabilities. Uh, and here's a guy who's blind, blind from birth, must have done something bad. So they've actually got a very serious question. Man, this guy's in a really bad spot. Did he sin or was it his parents? Was his parents who sinned that did that to him? Big question for them in the first century. Now, this is the life. This is sort of what we know what's going on for the young man. But then we uh, need to get to know Jesus a little bit more too because it's going to flesh out. We're going to revisit what's going on for Jesus. Jesus answers them in verse 3, neither this man or his parents sinned. Now, if we stop there, we go, that's an easy answer, done. But that's actually not the answer because you need to read the whole sentence because he actually deflects that question. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's like this happened that we've stumbled across him. Uh, he's before us now. This happened that we've talked about, we're talking about him so that the works of God might be revealed. It's like, I'm not going to fully answer your question yet. Because even his answer doesn't make sense. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. When We know we're all sinners. That actually doesn't make sense just by itself. Read as a whole sentence, Jesus is deflecting. He says, look, hold that question for later. But now let's talk about why he's here in front of us. He's here in front of us so that works of God might be displayed in him. Interesting that he uses this word works of God, plural. There's things that are going to happen in this guy's life. Miracles, you might say, are going to happen in this guy's life. More than one. And then he, Jesus reminds him, these works of God, Jesus says, I can do this sort of stuff. Because he goes on in verse 4 uh, to, to explain, he uses this God-type language, creator-type language, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus reflecting, God the Father sent me from heaven, uh, and I'm doing his work. Night is coming when no one can work, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. It's like just reminding everybody, his audience, who he is. I'm sent from God. I'm here to do the works of God. And what are we expecting to see? We've got a blind man. Jesus saying he's here because we're going to do some work of God. And by the way, I am God. So what are we expecting? A miracle. This guy is going to see. Sorry, that's with our 21st century glasses on. We get very familiar when we see Jesus and a blind man. We just expect there's going to be a healing. Uh, and there is a healing. This blind man is deep in sin, but he's going to get this new life revealed. Uh, Jesus spits on, it's not your ordinary healing. Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, rubs it on his eyes. You know, I think there's nicer ways that Jesus healed people. But he's rubbed it on his eyes and said to him, go and wash it off in the pool and then you'll be, uh, then you'll be able to see. And the man does. A couple of interesting things about that, that Jesus doesn't want him to be, for some reason, um, to see him or to, to be healed straight away, which means actually this man is going to go down and be healed but he's never actually going to see Jesus, see his face. By the time he goes down to the pool and opens his eyes, he doesn't know what Jesus looks like. He knows what he sounds like because he heard his voice. He's 
never actually seen Jesus. But Jesus says, do it. And the, the man's obedient. I'm going to do this. It's my only shot. So he goes down. Not only does he be healed, but then he goes home. <clears throat> he goes home and the people who know him, his neighbours, don't even recognise him. It's like, is this the guy that used to sit and beg? And you kind of sort of feel for him at that point. Maybe if that is his home and it is his neighbours, that maybe they've never actually talked to him or maybe paid him too much attention because he's the cursed guy that sits begging. But they're going, who is he? Is he, is he the guy or does he only look like him? He goes, no, I am the man. They go, oh, well, how's your eyes opened? He tells them the story. The man they call Jesus. See what he talks about Jesus. It's going to be interesting how this guy's idea or understanding of Jesus changes throughout this story. At this stage, he's saying, the man they call Jesus. He put mud on my eyes, went to the pool, washed it off, and now I see. Ah, they say, well, where is this man? Like, this is so unbelievable. And you can understand that. I think for us today, we go, oh, medical science, they can make the... Those who are deaf hear, a lot of people who are blind can see. Yeah, we can do this stuff, so we kind of get amazed at the medical stuff that people do today. But in this day, that's never happened before. A blind person from birth that's been begging can now see. So they've got all these questions. Well, where is this man? You know, this magician, this miracle worker, where is he? And the guy says, I don't know. Can't even give you a description of him. I can't even draw you one of those faces to go wanted, hunt this guy down. I don't know, he says. It's just an amazing story and a radical story. And we need, I think John, who's writing this, actually gives us lots of detail in this story to make us stop and think what's going on. That this is an amazing miracle that we just take for granted. Blind man, Jesus, of course he's going to be healed. But for these people, it's like, what? Really? This guy can now see, has never seen before. This blind man who's deep, that we thought was deep in sin is now like one of us. They're having trouble believing it. Now, the story goes on and we meet some more people. Uh, these people we're going to meet next, called the Pharisees. And they're people who should be able to see, but they can't see. Now, Pharisees, again, if we've uh, been through the, the Gospels particularly, you go, Pharisees, ah, oh, they're the bad guys. But actually, first century Jewish uh, environment, these are the good guys. These are like what we might call today the Bible guys. They work hard at the Scriptures. As we said, we've got the Old Testament and many other writings. They work hard at Scriptures. They're well-educated. They like to protect the truth. They like to dig deep into understanding who God is and fight off any heresies. They like to live it out by applying the law. So they come up with all the rules about how to live for God, how to impress God. They're the ones that come up with ideas like... If you're blessed or cursed by God. If you're blessed, you're wealthy. Cursed, you're poor. If you're blessed, you're healthy. Cursed, if, you, if you're blind. They're the guys that come up with these sort of theories. But they've got their heads in the scriptures. They work hard. I think if these guys are around today, we'd probably say, actually, we want to be one of them. They've got the Bible colleges. They've got the scriptures. They're, they're, they're trying to be loyal to the scriptures. But for some reason, they just can't see Jesus. They don't get it. And how this plays out 
is word is spread about this blind man who's been healed. So they bring him in and they've got this courtroom kind of setting. We'll see how it plays out. It's like a jury. I'm not sure how many people were in this room, but we can play it here. Like there's a bit of a jury. You guys are the jury. You've got to make up the mind. What is going on with this miracle? The Pharisees are up here with their lawyers. They're well-educated guys. They've got their books and their scrolls and they bring in the young man. And they, they've already heard about Jesus. They've already made up their mind about Jesus. So they want to just dismantle this guy's whole argument, his whole testimony. So they bring him in, say, what's happened? He retells his story, put mud on my eyes, uh, I washed it, now I see. It's a simple story. This guy's amazing. But they go, uh-huh. When did he do this? Ah, oh, it was on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath uh, is a day of rest. On the Sabbath, they have all these rules to stop you from working because we want you to be good before God and blessed by God and pleasing to God. So one of the rules that they have to stop you from working, you can imagine a farmer tempted to plough his paddocks because he's got this extra day. No, no, you're not allowed to turn the soil and a part of turning the soil, man, if you spit on the ground, I don't, I don't, I don't know of any rule about spitting on the ground, but to make mud, oh, that's, that's work. He's working on a Sabbath day. He can't be God. He can't be a miracle worker. He can't be a man of God because he's a sinner. This Jesus is a sinner because he's broken the Sabbath. It's their argument. Like it's open and shut case. Like it's just done. This doesn't have to be drawn out. But then other people, you guys in the court, are going, hang on a minute. Yeah, we get this. Part of the room's going, we get this. He's broken the Sabbath. This is bad. But then other people are going, hang on a minute. How can... This guy performs such signs if he's not from God, if he's, if he's a sinner, if he's just one of us. We can't do these signs. There is something special about him going on. How can a sinner perform signs like this? So the argument you know, doesn't quite hold. So they push on. The courtroom's divided. They push on. They ask the witness then, well, who, who witnessed this to tell us who this man was, who this Jesus was? Well, actually, the boy who was, uh, the young man who's now can see. Uh, so they asked him, who do you think, open your eyes, what do you say about him? And the man says, remember what he said before? The man they call Jesus, he's the one who did it. Where now he's going, well, actually, now that I think about it, and possibly now that I'm hearing you guys argue about it, that he can't be a sinner if he's doing stuff like this. Maybe he's a prophet. Prophet's just a man from God. A prophet uh, come into the world as God's mouthpiece. God spoke to the world through his prophets. And they, they were able to do signs to back that up. So, yeah, maybe he's a prophet. Now, that didn't go down too well with the Pharisees. He's not giving them the answers they want. So what do you do? You've got to start thinking through all the TV shows. This is what it's like for me. All the TV shows of courtroom hearings, what are the tactics they do to dismantle arguments? So they go, oh, maybe we can just discredit the witness. If the witness is saying stuff we don't want, we can prove him to be a liar. Maybe he wasn't blind at all. Maybe he's just making it up. So what do they do? It goes on in verse 18. They, they bring in the parents. We want to see if this guy is telling the truth. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one who was born blind? How is it now that he can see? And they're like, hang on, hang on. Let's just, we'll tell you what we know. Yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. And how he can see? We have no idea. It's a miracle. We have no reasonable explanation. 
except for believing in him because he's of age, let him speak for himself. He's not a liar. The courtroom's not going so good for the, for the Pharisees pushing into this. What's another tactic they can use? Have you seen that good cop, bad cop thing? So far, they've played the good cop, we've tried to speak to him nicely, uh, played the, the bad cop in, in bring it up. Now we're going to speak to him nicely to see what he can say. So they bring him in again, back into the room, and say to him, uh, give, God, uh, give glory to God by telling the truth. You know, it's almost like they're, they concede this is an act of God. So give glory to God for this. Don't give glory to Jesus because we know this man is a sinner. They're saying, uh, sort of get beside him, a bit of empathy. And like, this is amazing what's happened to you. But don't point, don't give it to Jesus. And he's like, look, I'm no theologian. I, I don't know if it's a sinner or not. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. That's amazing, isn't it? But the Pharisees still don't get it. So they want to find cracks in his story. So they go on again, verse 26. How did he do it? Tell us the story again. So we can sort of pull apart your story maybe. We can't pull apart his character. Let's pull apart the story. And he goes, I've told you this story before and you're not listening. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you, he's a bit cheeky, this guy. Do you want to become his disciples too? You know, this story is so amazing. The more you hear it, the more you go, wow, I need to know this guy, Jesus. But so he goes, do you want to hear it again? So you know it too. You know how that went down. Verse 28, they hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. See the scriptures, see the Old Testament. God spoke to Moses in the Old Testament. We trust Moses. We don't trust this guy. We don't trust him at all. We don't even know where he's from. Not, not that they, we already know they've called him um, a local from Galilee. But is he from God? We don't even know if he's from God or not, let alone doing this stuff. So they're, they're starting to get angry. Things are heating up. And we get to the point where we get to the closing arguments of this, this court hearing. And the closing argument in Jesus' defence is given by the, the young man himself. The man answered... Now, and you see this, pulling, pulling a few thoughts together. Now, this is remarkable because he's the uneducated blind guy who's been kicked around like trash on the street. The Pharisees are the educated guys with all the degrees and all the scrolls. Yes, that's remarkable. You don't, you don't even know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Like, if you open my eyes, doesn't that mean he come from God? Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Doesn't that mean if God listened to him that he's not a sinner, that he's actually from God? Verse 32, nobody has ever opened the eyes of a man born blind. Fact. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Like, are you not seeing this miracle? Are you not seeing what this means about who Jesus is? How the Pharisees take that one? Verse 34, to this they replied, they're just personal attack now. They're not worried about the evidence. You were steeped in sin at birth. You know, we saw you begging. You're a sinner cursed by God. How dare you lecture us? We've got scrolls. We've got degrees. We're the, the religious guys. And then they threw him out, out of the courtroom. He's not given what they want to see. See, for some reason, 
These guys, if anybody in Jerusalem should know who Jesus is, how the Old Testament, this was, this was a plan by God. God's saying, I'm going to send you my man. I'm going to send you my prophet. I'm going to send you the one from heaven to come and be your holy king, the Messiah. They're expecting somebody, but they don't see it. They should see it, but they can't. They can't at all. So then begs the question then, what happens? What happens to the Pharisees? Where are they going to end up? What happens to the young man? It's often characters like this in the story. We don't know his name. We don't know a lot about him. Uh, with his family, he doesn't um, get referred to any, any later on in the Gospel of John. What happens to him? We actually know what happens to him. After he gets thrown out of the, uh, where the Pharisees are, uh, Jesus catches up with him again. And we see those who couldn't see, so he couldn't see before physically, he can see properly now. Because remember we talked about the works of God and we go, oh yeah, the work of God is going to do a miracle. And we go, maybe there's more than one miracle. This is the second miracle that's coming up. Jesus heard they'd thrown him out, so seeks him out again. This man, if you've ever noticed, this man never comes after Jesus, but Jesus keeps going to him. He goes to him, finds him and says, do you believe in the son of man? Now, the Son of Man is this term that's used a few times in the Old Testament, talking about God sending his man from heaven, God's king from heaven into earth. So the book of Daniel talks about the Son of Man coming down from a cloud uh, to walk this earth with us. So they're expecting this God's king to come from heaven, which is God coming into humanity. So he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Even believe, not like, oh, believe... Um, I believe there's fires out there and stuff like that. But no, I believe in that. I trust. I trust in the promise. I trust that God's going to fill it. And I'm going to trust in the Son of Man when he comes. So he goes, verse 36, Who is he, sir? And you've got to remember. So this guy's now talking to Jesus, but he's never actually seen him face to face because he was blind before. So he doesn't recognise who Jesus is. So who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I might believe in him. I want to trust in him. I want to follow him. I want to give my life to him. To that, Jesus said, you have now seen him. Get this. Before, he had his sight. It's like Jesus says, let me do a miracle for you. I'm going to give this man his sight. Never before has he seen the trees. Never before has he seen the beautiful sunlight. Never before has he seen his mum's face. But now he sees it all. But now I'm going to open the eyes of your heart. I'm going to open your eyes spiritually. And now you're going to see him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. I think he just throws that in just to go, do you recognize my voice? And the guy's like, yeah, I recognize that voice. You're the one who healed me. And now I'm seeing him. Then the man says, Lord, I believe and he worshipped him. Now, even that's an amazing response. Jesus doesn't say, do you know who I am? You need to get down on your knees and praise me and worship me. No, no. Jesus says, look, you can see me. And it's just a natural response for this guy to go, wow, you are Lord. You're like, major, better than anyone else. You're Lord. I believe. I will trust not only in the promise, but now I see the promise fulfilled. I trust in you. Trust my whole life in you. And he worshipped him. Now, sometimes we think worship is kind of what we do here with our music. We might sing and reflect on God and pray to God and praise God through our music. 
I don't think he's breaking out the tambourine, starting to sing at that point. Uh, Worship, actually, if you take the literal form of worship, it actually means falling down at somebody's feet, being on your haunches, head down, because they're so high above you that you can't even stand face to face. You want to bow down, worship them, praise them and honour them by that physical action. There's a good chance this is the kind of worship he's doing. He's fallen down at Jesus' feet. Not because Jesus commanded, you must. It's like, no, now I can see you. I can see you clearly. I couldn't see before. Even on the whole journey, he couldn't see. But now he's gone... I think the man Jesus healed me. Oh, no, maybe he was a prophet. And then at the end of the argument, he goes, I think he was a man of God that he could do this. And now he goes, no, no, he's the son of man. He's God's king from heaven. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to worship him. His eyes, his spiritual eyes have been opened up so he can see. Which is an amazing act. Those, even setting up the story, you know, who are the characters? The guy at the start who was cursed by God, said to be a sinner, even the worst of sinners, that he was, sin, uh, that he was blind at death. He's now the closest one to the creator God of the universe. He's fallen at his feet. He's the closest ones. The Pharisees, who should have known who Jesus was, should go, wow, you're the one that God spoke about all through the prophets of the Old Testament. We're drawn to you. We can see you clearly. They're far away. They're nowhere near Jesus. No way are they bowing the knee to him. They're far. And this is the works of God, how it comes out. Sometimes we think we want God to do work in our life. We want God to to fix our eyes maybe, to fix our finances, fix my, my relationships, to fix these things. And God can do anything. But the real work that he's after is to to draw you near to him so you can see him, so spiritually you can see him clearly and know who he is. This whole works of God's an interesting statement in John. A clear, it's used a few times in John. A clear one uh, is back in chapter 6. I'll just point you. People got lots of questions for Jesus. They ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The Pharisees are going, we want to do the works of God by obeying the law, obeying the Sabbath. You know, all these rules that I'm good enough for God, their works. Jesus says, no, no, the work of God is this. Believe in him. Look at him. Have your spiritual eyes open so you can see him. So you can believe in him, the one he sent. Now, the exciting thing is, uh, as I stand here this morning talking about church, thinking about our congregation meeting later, thinking about the end of year and next year, is to go, hey, you know what? God's at work here and that we're seeing it and we're celebrating it god's at work opening up people's eyes so they can see him clearly no matter what they were doing before i think all of us have have this sense of a boy's look we think we know god or we miss god but but god's going no no let me show you this is jesus so uh, we've started running the life course this year. Uh, Ben's focused his role more on mission stuff. We've had four people have this experience of having their spiritual eyes open and go, I get it. This is Jesus. This is Lord. There's been an amazing miracle in here. The four people would have that. English for Life's another ministry uh, that goes on in here where we uh, try and help 
particularly people from other countries, come to understand English to help them settle into our community, but also an opportunity to show them God's love. Four people this year have become Christians through English for Life. This miracle has happened again. That they're going, I get it. I couldn't see before. Maybe I wasn't even looking before. I was looking and I had the wrong picture before. But now I see it and I get it. This is not just airy-fairy stories in the Bible. Oh, it doesn't really happen today. No, these miracles are happening. And they're happening here with us, which is an exciting journey because I can tell you with confidence that Jesus can do this stuff. That if our eyes are a bit blind, that if we're wrestling with, what well, I'm just not sure if I, if I get Jesus. You know, I read about him, I understand a bit about him, but to call him Lord, to fall down at his feet and worship him as my way of eternal life, as my way of finding true life, maybe we need to keep praying and working towards Jesus. Do your work in our hearts. Do your work in the hearts of those around us. So as church together, we can see him and celebrate him. And praise him together. Jesus is doing it. And will continue to do it. Because he's truly Lord. But there's another question we need to come back to. And that is the question about who sinned. Who sinned? Was it, did this man deserve to be blind? Or is it his parents who are blind? What, what's the sin that caused that? Jesus comes back to this right at the end of the passage. And he says, those who are deep in sin, yet they are blind. But it's probably not what you think. Jesus says, this is straight after, this is talking to the man. And the Pharisee, there's a few Pharisees around watching this and listening to it. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see. And those who see will become blind. And you've got to realise there's that play on physically seeing and spiritually seeing. Those who... Uh, are blind physically will see, but also spiritually, if they're blind, they're going to see. God, Jesus will reveal themselves. But those who think they can see, Jesus says, they're not, they can't see me. Verse 40, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked what? Are we blind too? Remember, we've got the degree, we've got the scrolls, we know everything, and you're calling us blind? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see... Your guilt remains. It's actually... The question right at the start was about physically seeing. Was it the sin that stopped him from physically seeing? She says, no, you got the right idea, but it's not physical, it's a spiritual thing. If you think you can see spiritually, I've got all the answers. She says, no, you probably haven't. Actually, I know you haven't because you're blind. You need me in your life to do the works of God so you can see. It's a big slap in the face, the Pharisees. Because they think they can see and nobody else can't. And nobody else can. But yet, they're the ones, by rejecting Jesus, they're the ones who are deep in sin. And it's because they're deep in sin that they've become blind to Jesus. They're good works. They're good people. They study hard. But they don't see Jesus. They're in sin, Jesus says. Now, within all these characters in the story, I'm not sure who you relate to the most. In fact, some of us can go, actually, when I look at my life, I had no idea who Jesus was. I was completely spiritually blind. But there was a turning point in my life where I could see. And now Jesus transformed my life. And there might be some of us who go, no, actually, 
I'm wrestling with this stuff that I've gone, maybe I am relying on too much of what I know or what I'm doing, that maybe I'd, I've got the wrong Jesus, that I don't see him clearly. I actually relate to both these guys. See, in my story, I was born into church, always went to church. I was good, my family were good diehard Presbyterians, went to church every Sunday, raised in church, went to Sunday school. And what it did for me was I got to know lots of stuff. And by knowing lots of stuff, I become really proud and arrogant. I've got all the answers. You can imagine a young guy, young church kid, kids around kids' church, young church kid, they just know it all. And I didn't know Jesus. I never saw Jesus. So even into my teens, I was the kid who went around judging everybody. You're working on the Sabbath. What do you think you're doing? You know, I've got it together. You need to be like me because God's pleased to me. God's happy with the way I'm leading my life. But then when I was about 15 at a youth camp and saw Jesus, it was explained to me, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus did have to die, and he had to die for your sin because you're not good enough. I'm like, what? I'm the good guy. But at that moment, I knew. I could suddenly see, see the world completely different. Actually, I'm not as good as I thought I was. I was relying too hard on myself to make my way to God that Jesus had to come to me to open my eyes. So then once I realised Jesus is God and he had to die for me because I'm just not good enough, yeah, that, that experience of, Lord, I believe. I'm going to trust in you. Trust in you with my life. And I fall at his feet and worship him in everything I do. Of course, I don't do that perfectly. But I can see him clearly. I can see him clearly. Now, it's going to always be our prayer in this church that God reveals himself to us. It's going to always be our prayer that we can see him clearly, know him, so we can worship him and truly trust in him. Because he is true life and he does have the answers. So I'm going to pray now that God does clear us up from any blindness, spiritual blindness, so we might know him so that we might draw to him and have the life of this, this blind man that was thought to be deep in sin, but now draws closest to Jesus than anyone else. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you for your love and mercy to us, that, that you don't send us a list of going, we must do this, we must perform, we must be religious, we must be good enough, but you send Jesus to us. You know our sin and our shortfalls, you know our, even our arrogance, our religious arrogance. We think we've got the answers. But Lord, we pray for, for works of God in our lives. That you would open our spiritual eyes. That we might see you, know you, trust you and follow you all the rest of our days. Help us to worship you like no one else ever before. That we know we fully depend on you. And we fall at your feet. Lord, you know where each of us are at in our journeys and our questions. You know our hearts, Lord. So we pray that your spirit be working on us to do that amazing miracle. In Jesus' name, amen.